Hey guys, before we start today's episode, I wanted to talk to you about a new short film from yours truly entitled The Tinder Gang. This is a hilarious comedy starring former podcast guests Lolo Savage, Dirt Lord, and Jacob the Freak. Um, we were even nominated to be featured in the Wolverine Con and San Bernardino Valley College International Student Film Festival, which is a big deal for a couple islands making a stupid film. We did this with Grill Graphics, had a bunch of people from DMAC help out, and this turned out to be a hell of a ride. So please check out the link in the description to watch it now. Guys, 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 guys. Gorilla Graphics Design Agency. These are the people you want to hit up if you got your next video project, um, design thing you need, whatever. Um, if you want a clean and fresh looking product, these are the people to hit up. This company um, is something that I've per personally collaborated with. I just shot them out on the last ad for our work on Tinder Gang. And this... Um, company is the one you want to hit up. They have everything you can ask for with professional equipment and a stellar end product from top to bottom. Head over to GorillaGraphics.com for all of your design needs. That's spelled G-U-E-R-R-I-L-L-A-G-R-F-X.com. Hello, everybody. You're watching Sludge, listening to the McAllister Hours. I'm your host, Cole McAllister. Um, we are here in Cedar Rapids today. I'm joined by my beloved guest, Rob Merritt. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Oh, nice. Welcome too. to Cedar Rapids. You were saying when we came in, this is like your first time here. Yeah, yeah. First time over here. I've been to Iowa City, and I've been to... Uh I was over in Davenport a couple months ago, and I'm going to be there in a couple weeks. But uh, yeah, I've just never, I've never found myself here. I've never found a reason to be here. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, now that you have experienced the mean streets of Cedar Rapids, your soul will never be the same. <laughs> yeah, man, uh, I, I might have to go to my therapist after this, and uh, might have to have a session all about all the harrowing things that I've encountered so far. Well, you know, in my hour of Cedar Rapids. <laughs> hey, this, we we are the place that spawned Ashton Kutcher. So if you find that you can't find your car later, you'll understand what's happened. There you go, fucking Ashton Kutcher, man. Uh, so before we get into this, let me or uh, let me ask you about your background general background for those who may not know who you, who you are i can't talk to you sorry um yeah well, tell me a little bit about yourself i've just been i, I mean i've i uh, i grew up in iowa and graduated from university of iowa and i spent the first decade of my career uh working in journalism i worked uh for the newspaper at marshalltown and then i was the news editor for the gazette and uh, I worked in like arts reporting, things like that. And, and then uh, about 15 years ago, I got the chance to start working in the theater instead. Uh, I became the communications director for Theater Cedar Rapids. And, um, and along the way, I sort of discovered video production. We were doing a lot of video work to promote the theater. And so none of us could afford to hire anybody. So we just kind of figured out how to do it. And as a result, I kind of discovered sort of a side career of doing a lot of video production, which has now grown into uh, I do a lot of my own video work in addition to uh, video work for the places that uh, that actually employ me. And um, and along the way, I've always been very active in the arts. Uh, I've been an actor for a long time and started doing theater like when I was in high school. And uh, I was a double major of, of journalism and theater in college. One, okay. one because I loved it and one because I figured I could make a living at it. I guess the irony was that uh, that was newspaper journalism, which I thought was the safer, more secure career <laughs> to go into back in 1998. Uh, that paid off. But um, yeah, so I, but I've been really active in theater and the arts and, and film 
um, for the last uh, like like twenty some years, and I've done a lot of shows around the area. Uh, I lived in New York for a while, and you know now I've just kind of settled into a, a comfortable place of I work here. We're actually at uh, New Boco right now, which is which is my day job. I am the communications director uh, for New Boco, which is an organization that works to support. Uh, like startup businesses in Iowa, okay. helping people get a new business off the ground. Uh, we also are really heavily involved in tech education. We have our own coding school, the Delta V Code School. Okay. And, uh, and we also are very heavily involved in coding. We work with code.org to help get coding programs into K-12 schools all over the state. There's actually a requirement right now that all schools in Iowa need to offer computer science by, I think, 2025. Oh, and okay. so, uh, and obviously that involves a lot of teacher training. And mm-hmm. so we're very involved in that. So it's, so that's kind of what I do during the day. And then when I'm not here, I am uh, working on my own stuff, filmmaking, acting, uh, a lot of weird, crazy things. I'm basically one of those people that I couldn't decide what the heck I wanted to do when <laughs> I grew up. So I just decided to try and do all of it. And <laughs> here I am still doing that. Damn. That's impressive, man. Uh, so your organization, New Boco, um, like, is it geared more towards coding? Or do you guys do stuff with, like, the arts video production? Like, can detail more, like, what you guys do? You know, the entire organization is built around the idea of supporting um, supporting business in Iowa uh, with the idea being that a lot of companies, when they start up, they grow. If you start a company in Iowa, uh, a lot of times you grow to a certain point, and then after that you can't grow anymore unless you leave and go to Seattle or New York or something like that, where you can find the people that you need to hire because you just can't find employees with the skills that you need in Iowa for certain tech businesses and certain tech startups. And so one of the things that Nubico is trying to do is do everything that we can to support keeping those businesses here. And that includes training people to do the kind of work they need to do. Uh, That's why we have a coding school so that we have more people that can do coding. And at the same time, we have a startup accelerator that helps people build new businesses. Um, We have an entrepreneur academy, which teaches existing businesses how to think in a more innovative way so that their business can, so that they can do more with less and be more creative and not get stuck in the same patterns. Um, So yeah, I mean, if you look at everything that Nubo Code does, that's in a nutshell what we're pushing for. And I remember that um, it was only a couple of weeks after I started here, one of the first things I worked on was promoting the fact that we had gotten a Google grant uh, to help bring coding education into uh, into the women's prison in the state of Iowa, mm. uh, because the idea was that if we could train, uh, if you have if you have an inmate who is like going to be getting released in another year, um, there's not very many career opportunities for those for for people in that situation. Yeah. Um, and the thought was, well, we need more coders and. Uh, people who are trying to start their lives over, they, you know, they need a better career opportunity. So what if we offered people who are still incarcerated the chance to learn how to code so that by the time that they get out, uh, instead of going to work, you know, like a getting a job uh, at, at Walmart or something, they could get a job uh, working as a coder and actually start a new career and basically rebuild their lives. And so, uh, so we were publicizing that we had that 
And I was like, wow, I am working at a place that is actually making a difference and is actually helping people. And that was a great feeling to have. You know, it, it, you know, everybody's worked jobs where it's like it's a paycheck and that's all it is. And, you know, you go in, you clock in, you do what you need to do. And, you, and you, it's great to have a job that isn't like that, that I'm like, I actually really believe in what we're doing. This yeah. is really cool. So um, so I'm really grateful for that. Yeah, I can't. I, there are probably not very many people that could say that at all. I mean, even if you like your job, I mean, to have that sentiment, like, you know, you're really helping people. That's really special. And I really I really appreciate what you and your company are doing because. I'm a big believer that um, children should be got, um, taught coding right along with English. Like to like be able to get your mind in the sense where you can code is a difficult thing. Like, you know, I took um, probably about a year and a half of coding classes. And like the first year of it was purely just like how, training you how to think like this is a bicycle and these are all the parts. And like this is like you got to think of code in a circle, not just like boom, 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 boom and pseudocode and things like that, you know. And yeah, I, I, it's the future, whether you like it or not. So people should be equipped. Yeah. Well, one of the fun things about our code school, Delta V, is that it's a boot camp style school. So mm. instead of going, you know, instead of going to coding school for three years, four years, you know, getting like a full blown college program, uh, you go through this boot camp where you're working all day and learning a ton of concepts and you get the whole thing done uh, in about six months. And so, wow. so the idea being, hey, you know, you commit six months of your life to learning this and suddenly you are eligible for one of like an incredibly high demand career um, without having to, you know, invest four years of time into doing that. Mm. And, uh, and plus we have a lot of financial aid packages that help make it not be so expensive for people to do as opposed to like a four-year school. Um, I mean, Nubico is a nonprofit. You know, we're not trying to make money off of this. Yeah. We're trying to help the state. And so because of that, we're able to offer a lot of really cool programs that are designed basically just to help people. And that's, you know, it's, it's really great to be involved in that. Yeah. So do, do you like work with the school at all or is it completely independent? Um, Delta V is, is part of Nubico. So I work with them pretty regularly. Okay. I, uh, I work with them on, we're actually starting a new cybersecurity curriculum. Uh, we're going to be launching the first ever one in about another, uh, another month and a half. And so I've been working with them on brainstorming how to promote that, uh, how to make people aware that the opportunity is there. And so, um, I mean, I'm not like in the classes every day or anything, yeah. but I, but I very much am working with the team of instructors at Delta V to, to help get the message out about what we do. Okay. So, so just so I understand, like, what's the difference between, in terms of like jobs and understanding, like going through the six month program versus like doing the traditional route to four year college? Um, well, the difference is uh, it's way less, uh, way less time and way less money. So you get the same bent, like Absolutely. Amount? Okay. The, the thing that is difficult and that some people struggle to adjust to is that, you are in class for eight hours a day. Well, oh, okay. And, and it's, so it's very intensive during yeah, that during yeah. that period of time. You are you are getting, it's it's a full time job for five months to be going to Delta V. Damn. There are people who have attempted to try and keep like a weekend job at the same time. That's extremely difficult to do wow. because because you just have. You know, you're in class for eight hours and then you have out of class work to do to learn concepts and the school doesn't stop and wait for you. You know, like you, you're, you're, you do a day and you're learning these concepts and then the next day you're moving on under the assumption that everybody in class got it. If, uh, if there's somebody who's like, yeah, I still don't get this. 
you're going to fall behind because they're not going to stop and wait for you. So, um, so being part of a boot camp requires a lot of dedication. But if you can do it, you know, if it's something you really want, then it's it's an incredibly quick way to completely change your career. If if you're working a job for the, like the last 15, 20 years and you're bored with it and you're like, I need to do something different, um, being able to get qualified to do that in six months as opposed to four years is it's a fantastic opportunity. Wow. Um, yeah, like I said, I really I really appreciate what you guys are doing. Um, so, like, what kind of like specifically what kind of job opportunities are there for people once they've uh, completed your course? Oh, for coding? Yeah. No, you name it, man. Basically I mean, anything. I mean, every company out there has websites yep. uh, that, that need constant uh, administration, um, whether it's working on uh, front-end operating systems. Um, yeah, I mean, there's it's, it's a job market that is continuing to grow. There is no shortage of demand. Um, and if, I mean, if, if anything, what you're constantly hearing are companies saying, we can't find the people who can do the kind of coding work that we need. And so if, uh, I mean, we, we had, I don't know what the latest figures are, but for, um, for a long time, we were able to say that we had a 100% uh, job placement rating, that every single person who graduated from Delta V uh, was able to find a job wow. because it was, it's just, that, that's what it's like. Um, and the other thing is the huge potential for growth because, yeah. you know, once you've been working as a coder for a couple of years and you get good at it, um, there's some really lucrative opportunities out there. Once you can prove that you know what you're doing and you're good, companies will pay quite a bit to get you on board. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I think the fast-paced environment for, you know, that six months, that's probably a little more, um, you know, similar to, like, what the real-world experience is like. One of my biggest criticisms of traditional college has always been that it's a lot softer than the real world. There are mm-hmm. a lot of people that go through the four-year university system and then they, either if they can find a job, it's nothing like what they expected. And there's like a whole other thing that they have to learn and maneuver, you know, but I, I really, yeah, I appreciate what you guys are doing. Um, what, let me just ask you this one last question. Like what could, um, for people interested, what kind of requirements are there for getting into this program? You want to do it. Okay. That's it. I mean, we, we're not like, oh, you have to have a degree in this or whatever. You mm-hmm. know, with, with the most important thing is that you want to do it and that you understand what you're getting into. Um, somebody who already has a, a bachelor's degree and is kind of like half-ass about this, not going to make it. Somebody who um, graduated from high school 15 years ago and never got any other education, but now they are really fired up and really hungry, you got a good shot. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that. Uh, let's go back to your beginnings. You said you were a writer, correct? And I think I've heard yeah. that from the podcast. That's right. Um, one of the things that really interested me about you when I listened to you and Alex Schulte's podcast was uh, you talking about your book, combine book called uh, No Easy Answers. Right. Um, describe like what what got you into like you know getting into that subject and what you learned from it. Well, I. Um, I had just graduated from college when Columbine happened. Oh, wow. Okay. And I was very, um, when I was in high school, I was very much that kid that I was very, I was very creative. I was into, um, yeah, I was in, I like, we, my friends and I, we would watch Hellraiser. We played Dungeons and Dragons. We were into like blood, gore, you know, yeah, all kinds yeah, of that yeah, kind yeah. of stuff. Um, 
and we you know we we listened to Nine Inch Nails all the time, and it was great. You know, and I remember that after Columbine happened, there were so many talking heads that were going on about how well you know this happened because of Marilyn Manson mm. and this happened because they were playing Doom and violent video games and and you know and they, 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 somebody even blamed it on the Matrix which hadn't <laughs> even come out yet when Columbine <laughs> happened uh, I mean it was just stupid and and the thing is that those of us who had grown up with those kinds of um, those kinds of entertainment media mm-hmm. We didn't want to kill anybody. We didn't want to yeah. walk into a school and shoot people. So for me, the thing that made me want to learn more about Columbine was I wanted to understand why it actually happened. Because I was like, it obviously didn't happen for the reason these people are saying. So why did it happen? Mm-hmm. And that was what started it. I just wanted to understand. And and so uh, you know, I read a lot about it, and I was I was pretty up on it. And then as fate would have it, um, I wound up crossing paths with Brooks Brown on a message board um, that, funny enough, had nothing to do with Columbine. And when he explained who he was, I knew immediately because I, you know, he said his name and I was like, oh, Brooks Brown, that's the guy that was like friends with them and was like the last person to talk to Eric Harris before Eric Harris started shooting. I remember his name. Um, and uh, and so we kind of struck up a friendship, you know, just kind of online at first. And um, I was working for a magazine company and one of my job and I had to travel around the country to document like different job sites, things like that. And, and uh, one of my trips was going to be taking me to Denver and Brooks said, Hey, if you're ever in the area, you know, hit me up. We'll, we'll hang out. And so I told him I'm going to be in Denver. And so we wound up spending a week just hanging out. Um, and we, we hit it off as friends. Um, and then and he had just been working on Michael Moore's movie, Bowling for Columbine. Mm. And so um, I wound up writing a piece about that. And What did you think of that, by the way? Um, I didn't actually finish it. Bowling for Columbine. I'm going to refrain from comment about okay, that. sure. That, that <laughs> film and that individual. Um, okay. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I will say that, uh, you know, by, by doing that story, you know, Brooks messaged me later and he was like, you know, I've, I've done a lot of um, interviews with a lot of reporters since Columbine happened. And mm. you are one of the only people who has authentically portrayed what I said rather than sensationalizing. Oh, it. wow. And not long after that, um, he sent me an email just saying that he really wanted to tell the story about what had happened to him. He wanted to do a book, but he didn't know how and asked if I had any interest in helping him. And I was like... Yeah, uh, you know, and, and we quickly figured out how to do it. I, I took some time off from work. I went to Denver and, and interviewed, like, I basically became his ghostwriter. And I, I interviewed him and I interviewed his family and uh, interviewed all these other people that were connected to Columbine. And then I kind of, you know, put my research hat on. And I felt like my job was I didn't want the book to just be, well, this is Brooks spewing about what he thinks happened at Columbine. I wanted to make sure that everything that he said, I found you know, documentation to prove that what he was saying was true. So, for example, he would talk about how there was this really strong bullying culture at Columbine. So I would find, you know, police reports and FBI studies that showed the exact same thing and other students talking about the exact same thing. Like, no, he's, he's not full of crap. Look, this really did happen. Um, and so, yeah, I, I worked with him on, on that project and it got released in 2002. And at the time, we were the first like research-based Columbine book to come out. Up to that point, the only books about Columbine that you could find were um, 
like the stories of of survivors. Or uh, there was a book called She Said Yes about Cassie Bernal, and there was a, mm. uh, Rachel's Tears, which was about Rachel Scott. And in both cases, those books were about people uh, who had been victims of Columbine. But outside of that day and what happened to them that day, they had no like like if you were looking for a book that just went into the facts of what happened at the school, uh, you you know no that book didn't exist Damn. until until we did ours. And there have been a number of them since then, but but we were the first one. And uh, and and funny enough, um, we're actually talking to the publisher right now because it's the 20 year anniversary, mm. and they want to issue a new version of it. Oh. And so, um, so they've they've been talking with us about um, a new forward that kind of covers a lot of the stuff that's happened since then. But it was it was a really important story to be a part of. Um, a because Brooks had a riveting tale to tell. I mean, he was this person who was connected in so many ways to that tragedy, not just knowing the killers, but also having been friends with multiple victims and him having been threatened by Eric Harris a year before the shootings happened and having turned in that, you know, Eric's web pages that showed that he was building pipe bombs and planning something awful. Uh, like oh, he, he did that before it happened? Yeah, yeah. Oh, he, wow. Brooks tried to warn the police that Eric Harris was not all right. Um, and nothing got done. And so on the day of Columbine, you know, after, after the shooting happened and there were, there were all these, you know, teachers and police and all that who were saying, well, we, you know, no one could have predicted this. We had no idea. Brooks came out and was like, actually, you kind of did. I did report this. I reported exactly what these guys were doing and what they were talking about and the fact they were making death threats and building pipe bombs and saying they needed to find a place that was going to be ground zero and that he had a hit list and all these people he wanted to kill. And um, and the police response to that was to go on, like, the, the, the sheriff um, in uh, – the, the sheriff, it, it, he went on to TV and basically – claimed that the reason Brooks was saying this was because he was being considered as a possible accomplice because he um, he seemed to have advanced knowledge and he had left the school when the shooting started. And and basically, it was an effort to discredit him, make him look like he didn't know what he was talking about. And so Brooks was um, not allowed to ever return to school. And Oh, wow. Yeah, the, the, basically, the school made him a deal. They were like, look, you're failing two classes. Just walk away. And we will give you your diploma, and we never want to see you again. Damn. And and Brooks took the deal because he just wanted to get out of there. Yeah, He's like, what? fine, whatever. Get a diploma. Out of that um, shit. <laughs> and uh, and so you know, so he he had, it took him two years to prove that um, that that was false. That uh, that that um, not only was Brooks not in on it, but that yeah, the police had been warned. And in fact, that the day of the shooting, they used Brooks Brown's police report from the year before in order to get a search warrant for Eric Harris's house uh, after once they figured out that he was one of the shooters. And it was like, so you guys, you guys knew, you knew that you had this document in your hand at the same time that you're telling the TV reporters, no, no, we don't, we had no idea. We had no idea that this guy was dangerous and you're using the report yeah. to search his house. Um, yeah, it was, it was, but I think that what was really exciting about, I don't know if exciting is the right word for it. I guess more meaningful and has really stayed with me is that we had so many people after that book came out who came up and said, um, either that they, they, uh, that they had been through similar experiences 
uh, or that that the like the book really made a difference to them. Um, I think there were a lot of people who were tired of all of the ridiculous stereotypes getting thrown around about yeah. goth kids and about video games and about movies. And here's a book that was coming out and going, no, no. I mean, the title of the book is No Easy Answers. We were like, look, this is not something that you can just say, oh, it was caused by this. It's like, no, this is a very complicated situation. And there were these factors and these factors. Um, and, you know, if any one thing hadn't happened, maybe Columbine wouldn't have happened. But these things all work together. And, and, um, and more importantly, what can we try to do in order to prevent things like this in the future? I feel really naive saying that now. It's like t- 20 years ago, we were like, what can we do? To make sure that school shootings don't happen again. And now it's just like, oh, you know, it's so weird because now if a school shooting happened today that was as extreme as Columbine, it wouldn't be nearly as big of a deal. Yeah. Because you wouldn't even hear about it until probably the next been, day. Yeah, because there have been so many, so many horrible things since then mm-hmm. and, you know, worse body counts and just terrible. It's, it's very, very frustrating. Um I guess in some ways it's a little bittersweet to know that the 20th anniversary version of the book is coming out because I would, if I could, you know, 20 years ago, I would have thought, oh, you know, this this situation will be resolved by then, mm. and instead it's like, oh yeah, 20 years later, the only thing, the only reason we've had less school shootings is. COVID-19 caused schools mm-hmm. to shut down for a while. You know, now they're happening again. So yeah, did you hear about when uh, the day? Some I think I can't remember what state it was in. There's just there was some state where the day the school um, opened up in a middle school, they had a school shooting. Like people were just like edging to go. It's <laughs> ship a school, and it's and it's terrifying, you know. And and, yeah. uh, and 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 now it has a new dimension for me. I'm going to actually be a dad in about six more weeks. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be a dad for the first time. So for the longest time, I've been talking about school and school experiences and things like that, kind of from the perspective of remembering what it was like when I was in school and uh, yeah. and then being worried about friends of mine who were in school and then just generally wanting things to get better. And now all of a sudden it's like, wow, here's a whole new dimension. Now I've got to look at it from the perspective of a parent. So yeah, yeah, I I – I, um, I'm very proud of what we did with that book, and I'm proud of the story that we told. But at the same time, I really, really wish that the uh, I wish that more had been done in the 20 years. I wish that we were we were in a different place now than we are. So yeah, let me ask you this: Do you have our um, what What do you think is the if you were to if you were to guesstimate and surmise? What do you think is the reason that those two did that that day? It's a, it's a really, that is a, <laughs> that is a difficult question to answer in one sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, it's a, it's a weird combination of like Eric Harris, that dude was messed up, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that if, if he hadn't met Dylan and he hadn't shot up Columbine down the road, he would have done something stupid. He would have, he would have killed somebody or he would have done a, I, I, but, uh, Honestly, the story that's more like, oh man, what I'm, is is Dylan? Dylan Klebold was a guy who, from, by all accounts, a really sweet kid. Uh, growing up, he was he was he was really nice. And he was really shy and quiet, and he got bullied pretty bad. I mean, he and Eric both did, and uh, and Brooks was like right there with him for a lot of that. And um, Dylan was very much, you know, he 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 was he was the follower type. He was a people pleaser. And something happened where Eric Harris got into Dylan's head. And, and if you think about how 
sometimes, you know, there are people who have who have talked about the basement tapes that Eric and Dylan recorded where they talked about what they were going to do. And they've said, you know, I don't believe for a second that Dylan was just going along with Eric because he's super enthusiastic on those videos and he's talking about all the people he's going to kill and all that. And I'm like, yeah, but typically whenever you see somebody who is trying to impress someone yeah. who they're following the example of, they're going to be super vocal about it. Yeah, they're, they're, they're the ones that are like, oh, yeah, rah, rah, we're going to do this. And usually the, the person who's the instigator who's actually leading it is kind of mm. just quietly sitting there, you know. <laughs> Yeah, he was maybe almost even trying to like convince himself in a way. Yeah, you know? and I, I, you know, I, I, there's there's a number of other things. You know, there was the bullying culture at Columbine. Um, there was the the need for a power trip that both of them had. Um, that Eric was, you know, that, that dude was crazy. I mean, he he was Eric was uh, not a, Eric Harris was not a good person. Um, and Eric brought Dylan into it with him. And in the end, I mean, I don't, I'm not making any excuses for Dylan Klebold because in the end, Dylan was yeah. every bit as much of a murderer as Eric Harris was. But I don't think Dylan Klebold would have gone and shot, you know, he would, he would not have killed 13 people on his own. That was something he was led into by Eric Harris. Um, and I think also, you know, they had like this, this sense of grandeur. They wanted to make this big impact that uh, they talked about how there was there was going to be a movie made about the shooting and they were talking about which director would be best for it you know they they had they uh, they had like a plan written out where if by some miracle they managed to get out of the school the that they were going to hijack a car and they were going to drive it to the airport hijack a plane and crash it into New York City they wrote that in 1999, which is really creepy to think about. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, they had this like crazy, oh, we're going to do this this thing. And um, but I, I mean, and there's a number of other things that go into it. You know, there are psychiatrists who could probably put together a much better picture. Yeah. But it's much easier to tell you what didn't cause Columbine, which was it wasn't caused by Marilyn Manson and it wasn't caused <laughs> because they played Doom. Like that's yeah. the dumbest thing. Um, and, and if you want to talk about things that could have been done to prevent Columbine. Um, if uh, if the police had followed up on Brooks's police report, that probably would have done it. If um, if there hadn't been loopholes at a gun show so that uh, so that people could buy weapons for them, you know that would have helped. Uh, th- there's so many other places that we could be trying to seek reform and say, hey, if we do this, you know, things like Columbine won't happen anymore. But you know, it's way easier and way more sensational to say, well, you know. Marilyn Manson, he messes with kids' heads. That's why it happened. And you know what? They wore black trench coats. You know, if you see a kid that's all wearing all black, you know that's going to be the next school shooter. We mm. got to frisk those kids when they walk into school. It, it's just, it's insane and and very frustrating that uh, that people and, and you see it now that people are so quick to embrace the easy explanation, the easy solution, yeah. that people don't want to sit down and critically think about stuff and ask hard questions of themselves. It's much, much easier to blame somebody else or blame some anonymous media thing than it is to go, hey, maybe we had a hand in this. Maybe there's something we could do differently rather than what they need to do differently. Yeah. Uh, I think <clears throat> I think it's really easy for people to simplify those things. You know, like you just, you know, you said, like you can't put that in one sentence, like anyone that does a school shooting, that is a very complex thing. And I think, yeah, there are, you know, majority of people, honestly, like they just want a simple explanation. By the way, can I just say it's, 
it's weird. I almost feel rusty talking about this topic because <laughs> I so long ago. Oh my man, I used to. I, we used to. Brooks and I both gave a lot of interviews back when the book came out, and you know we had there were so many so many things that. And now it's like, wow, I haven't even talked about Columbine in so long. Some of these questions that you're asking me, I'm like, I used to have an answer for that. Now I got to think about it. I'm like, oh, man, why did they do it? Because I used to felt like I had a pretty good grip on it. And now I'm like, it's been so long. I'm not 100% sure anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the um, trials of time, you know. I was actually thinking to myself that like when the new edition of the book comes out, I was like, I should sit down and read that thing. Because <laughs> I don't remember it. how long it's been since the last time I read it. I mean, I... I you know, obviously a whole bunch when it first came out. I was like, I, I don't think I've read that book in yeah. at least at least 10 years, maybe longer. Yeah. Who knows? Know. Somebody else might want to interview you for it, you know? Well, <laughs> it's so funny because we were, we were actually talking about well, how much do we update the book? And, you know, there's we figured it was more authentic if we leave it as is because it's, yeah. it's written in Brooks's voice. And it's very much, you know, him speaking mm-hmm. as somebody who had just experienced this. It's really tempting to go back in and take out all the insane clown posse references because Brooks was really hardcore into ICP at that time, and I give him such a hard time about it because I'm because he, he isn't now, obviously. Uh, but I'm like I'm like, yeah, hey Brooks, you think we should uh, leave in all that uh, all those quotes from uh, uh, from from Cottonmouth Kings and Insane Clown Posse because you know those were pretty important to you at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah, but but you know, in the end, we're like, leave it, leave it because that's who he was. You know, yeah. uh, it, it's more authentic. Yeah, and so. We did not George Lucas the book. We it, it is it is pretty much what it was twenty years ago. Um, and the other thing that's kind of nice is there's been a lot more information that's been released about Columbine in the last twenty years. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of things people know now that they didn't. But the nice thing is there's nothing in our book that isn't true. You know, there's there's things in the book that it's like, hey, it would have been nice to have known this, to have put this in more context. And there's a few things that we say in the book where we're like, hey, we don't know about this thing. And since then, that info has come out. But what's good is I don't think there's anything in the book that's inaccurate or that was like proven to be false. Because like I said, my job was to document what Brooks was saying. So if there was something that we could authenticate, we did. And as a result, um, the book feels... I mean, it's a little outdated because there are sure. there are other research books that are more up to date, but it's not wrong, and and I'm I'm glad about that. I'm glad it still holds up after all this time. Yeah, well, you know, especially in this day and age of journalism and media, I think people can appreciate um, authenticity. Yeah, in that. Let me ask you one more thing about uh, Combine, and then we'll move on. Um, There's something cheerful, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is a dark. This is a dark, dismal interview. No, I'm just kidding. Um, a lot of people, when Columbine happened, they, uh, you know, they criticize guns. And, I, you know, we don't need to get into, like, a big political thing. I'm just curious, like, how does it make you feel um, when people kind of point the conversation towards that when talking about Columbine? What, what do you mean? Like, like point it towards we need to talk about gun control? Sure. Like, or, like, if they, if they are making, if they, you know, like, let's say they overlook it and they say the problem is guns, not their mental health. I mean, I, I think that's overly simplistic. It, it's yeah. almost as simplistic to say, well, you know, the problem is guns, as it is to say, well, the problem is entertainment media. You yeah. know, it's, it's never any one thing. Um, and guns are a tool that you, mm-hmm. you use it. But the, the one difference is if somebody decides they want to kill a lot of people, um, guns make it a lot easier mm-hmm. to do that. Um, and I think what, what I think what's really frustrating for a lot of people in the gun control debate is that 
people who um, people a lot of people who support gun rights they try to paint the other side as this absolute extreme thing where that's like mm. either you support that I can have any gun that I want or you are a raging liberal who wants to take all the guns away and it's like no dude it's way more nuanced than that you want to have a rifle to go hunting with go for it and you want to have you know you want to have a gun for home protection sure do you really, really need the high point carbine? Uh, do you really need the the AR-15 that's fully you know, that that's fully automatic and carries all? Like, at what point have we gotten to where it's like, dude, you've gone beyond self protection. You're now getting guns that are capable of mowing down an entire crowd. What do you need that for? Um, and and even if you're like, hey, you know what? Still, it's my right to have that. Okay, fine. That's its own argument. But there's also the debate about what can we do to keep guns out of the hands of people who are meant who mentally should not have them. Mm. And what blows my mind is that when people ask that question, coming from the perspective of, hey, we've got a lot of mass shootings and we need to do something about it. Here's a crazy idea. What if we didn't give guns to people who have homicidal urges and massive criminal backgrounds? And it's like just saying that saying that we should talk about that is somehow this wild raging liberal mm-hmm. take all the guns away mentality and it's like no dude keep your gun i don't want i don't want the dangerous person over there to have a gun and i and, and again it goes back to that idea of there's so many people who just aren't willing to engage in critical thinking mm-hmm. that they just want simple solutions to everything and absolutes and either you support Anybody who wants to have a gun can have any gun they want and no restrictions. And if you don't believe that, then you're an unconstitutional, crazy, you know, liberal whack job. And it's like, no, no, we let's talk about this like people. Let's talk about this like adults and do what we can to try and keep more people alive, because it's a statistical fact that these kinds of shootings don't happen in other countries that they're happening in America. And there's there's tons of arguments you can make about why we have them all. But it's like, but have you noticed that a lot of those other places, they aren't nearly as relaxed on the gun rules as we are. And hey, what a surprise. We have way more mass shootings than they do. So I'm not saying, hey, all right, that's it. All the guns are getting taken away. Yeah. Because that's also a ridiculously extreme position. Yeah. But it's like, Shouldn't we all be trying to do something and not just saying, oh, well, those shootings are going to happen. That's just how it is. Um, I guess that my answer to your question is we need to talk about this and we need to talk about it reasonably and not with these crazy extremes of you're either a wild raging gun nut or you're a wild raging liberal and there is no gray area in between and there's no room for compromise because we need to compromise we need to come together and figure out a solution yeah there's a lot i mean as with anything there's a lot of binary thinking that happens um to happier topics yes yes <laughs> um you wrote I, I i'm curious how besides writing that was the credits that i saw um how much you were involved in it but uh you did the summerland project yes which i saw a little i did not watch the whole thing but i saw the first third of it um no wait to be clear you're talking about the summerland project or are you talking about amelia 2.0 because the movie is amelia 2.0. so i was confused about that yeah so, okay so summerland project was a stage play 
And oh, then okay, I after, see. after the Summerlin project had had a certain amount of success, it wound up being adapted into a movie that was called Amelia 2.0. Oh, so it's the same story, but yeah, it was turned from a stage play into a film and the film has a different title. Um, okay, th- that makes sense. Which, which had to do with the distributor. I mean, it was the movie was called The Summerland Project, clear up until I think maybe a few months before it was oh, released. Really? <laughs> and then the distributor was like, well, <laughs> we, we think that Amelia 2.0 sounds more sci-fi. And I was like, no, that sounds stupid. Um, but they, you know, I was overruled, um, which such is the film industry. Yeah. Uh, and as a result, <laughs> Amelia two point, I still, it's crazy. It has been, it's been, uh, five years since that movie came out. And I still cringe whenever I say <laughs> Amelia 2.0, I'm like, Oh, that is the worst title. Why did you do that? Oh, that's um, funny. yeah, no, I, I, it was, it was, uh, so, so yeah, it, it's, but the, even the movie, like, and you can even find, like, some of the trailers are still online that still have the Summerland Project as the title. Like, that was the name of it. But, um, but yeah, uh, it was so it was a stage play, and then it was a movie. And, um, and then I actually wrote a follow-up to it called Aurora, which came out uh, three years ago. Um, yeah, it was a really wild, crazy ride with, uh, <laughs> with, with, that, with that story and with those characters. And, and I got to have some really great experiences um, and getting to do a lot of things for the first time, like you know, from writing this little play that was performed in a basement theater at Theater Cedar Rapids in the underground new play festival uh, in 2011, and then seeing it become like a a TCR main stage show. Like I remember I I went to opening night in 2013 when it got like a full production and looking around and it was like a a sold out house of 500 people and realizing there are more people here to see the first performance of this show that's going to be running for the next month than there were that saw the entirety of the original run because that theater like held 90 people. And, and so it was like, wow, this is so different. And, um, and then, uh, and then from there, um, you know, and I've, I've seen the, I've seen the Summerland project performed by high schools. Uh, oh, wow. I, I went to like, there was a theater group at Carnegie Mellon, uh, that did it. And I, so I flew out to Pittsburgh to see that. And that was really, cause I was born in Pittsburgh. So it was kind of this crazy, Oh, I'm back in my birthplace to see Carnegie Mellon doing the Summerland project. This is weird. Um, it's, uh, it, it's been really fun to, to watch, to watch it grow like that. And then, and then it became a film, you know, and, and, uh, you know, working to figure out how to adapt it into a screenplay. And, and then, um, the cool thing was the movie was actually shot here in Cedar Rapids. Yeah, I, I um, noticed that. I was like, "Hey, represent!" And it was fun. <laughs> it was it was fun because it, it was something that we, you know, back in the mid two thousands when Iowa still had the film tax credit, and what all of a that? sudden, so I want to say it was from like from like two thousand five to about two thousand eight or two thousand nine. Iowa had approved a film tax credit, which basically meant that studio or a, any film could come here and shoot, and they got like tax rebates, which mm. suddenly made shooting a movie much more affordable. And there were a bunch of states that were doing this, um, and so for like about four years, we suddenly had all these movies that were coming to Iowa to shoot. Um, and the final season was filmed here with like Sean Astin and Rachel Lee mm. Cook. And um, I mean, there there was like, if you look on IMDb from like 2005, to 2008, there's a whole bunch of movies that were shot in Iowa because of this program. And then um, there was a rather unscrupulous film 
producer or it was somebody that was involved on a film that basically abused the system and mm. uh, and basically ruined the whole program and it got taken away and 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 it was and it was a shame um, and we really missed that and so one of the things that we thought would be really cool would be if if the Summerland project got filmed in Cedar Rapids that you know it'd be kind of trying to re kickstart that idea of movies being made here and so. And so, yeah, for like a few weeks, you know, Ed Bagley Jr. and Kate Vernon and um, uh, just all these, you know, all these actors came in and were hanging out. Uh, and and it was it was exciting. Uh, unfortunately, without tax support, you know, you're only going to have little one offs like that. For the most part, it's still very difficult to get a, a, a to get films made in Iowa. Hmm. I mean, there was a movie called Cedar Rapids. That got made. Yeah, Ed Helms. Like, yeah, Ed Helms. It was like it was made like I want to say ten years ago. I mean, it's called Cedar Rapids. It takes place in Cedar Rapids, but they filmed it in <laughs> like I forget what state they did it in, and and it was because that state offered uh, it yeah. had a tax credit program and made it affordable for them to do it. And it's like that's insane. That's that's so messed up that they can't film the movie in the city that it's supposed to be because another state is offering them a cheaper deal. It's like, Iowa, you're missing the boat here. And so, um, so yeah, un- unfortunately, we're just, unless somebody were to bring that program back, it's going to be hard to ever get the film industry to really come back here. Yeah. And, and it's a long-term thing too, because you have to build infrastructure, which they were starting to do in the mid-2000s. You, know, you have to have enough people in the state who are qualified to work on film sets and so that a crew can, you know, if, if a if a if a studio decides that they're going to shoot a movie in Cedar Rapids or Des Moines or whatever, um, they're the first thing they're going to ask is how many people do we need to um, how many people do we need to fly in uh, versus how many people can we hire locally? You know, do they have uh, do they have the people that already know how to do this? Because if we don't have to fly in a bunch of people and put them up and all that, if we can hire local people, that's going to bring the budget down. Um, and so, and, and, you know, we don't have to teach people how to do things. They get it. Yeah. So, you know, it, it takes a while to build that. Um, you look at places like Georgia. I mean, Georgia has built a thriving film industry now because they've had movie projects there for so long. Mm. And, uh, I mean, the Avengers movies get made in Atlanta. It's like, oh, I it's didn't crazy. know that. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And, and, uh, Tyler Perry has like a full blown, like studio that he's built in, in Atlanta. Hmm. It's, it's, it's like a thriving community because they built it. Um, so if Iowa ever wanted to have anything approaching that, they would have to kind of do the same thing. They'd have to build it up. And we, and so, so yeah, but that said, it was really fun to do that one project and to see it kind of, see it kind of take off. And, and, um, yeah. And, and of course I learned a lot, obviously I had never worked on a, a film project of that size and scale, um, particularly one that like had my name on it. Yeah. And so that was a real learning experience. And, and it was fun to see things like, uh, like Angela Billman, who played Amelia. She played Amelia in the original stage production at Theater Cedar Rapids. Oh, okay. And then several years later, here she is reprising that role opposite Ed Bagley Jr. And like these, these people that had come in from LA, but there she is playing like the main role. Like hmm. that was cool. That was really yeah, cool yeah. to know that, that we were able to create that. Um, so yeah, yeah, it was it was uh, it was it was a pretty memorable experience. Um, what like so you you were the writer obviously, and then like yes. what other? I saw that you had a cameo in it. Yeah, um, like yeah. what what else did you do in terms of like 
the production aspect or like how else were you involved? Is that it or very little? I actually okay. was not really on set for it. Okay, um, okay. It was it was very much Adam Morton's film. Uh, you know, I, I I wrote the script and and um, and you know, is that someone you knew or is that just Adam? A, yeah, no, okay. I knew Adam. I I had uh, I had been in a couple of like student films of Adam's. Okay, and okay. so when when the movie project was moving forward and there were investors coming on board, I recommended Adam as director. I was like, yeah, you should get this guy because I've worked with him. He's 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 really good and. And, uh, and Adam is still, you know, he has a studio here in, in Cedar Rapids now, um, and he's regularly producing things and, and, um, but, but yeah, yeah, it was, again, it was one of those things where I was like, I want to see as many local people get opportunities from this as possible. Uh, and, and we did, we, there were, there were a lot of local people that worked on that film. Damn. So, uh, so let me ask you this, how did it feel like? seeing your baby up on the screen because there were some a-list, you know some notable a-list celebrities on that i was impressed so here's the thing that and i wish i had understood this better when i started it and and i, I tell it now to other people who are, are looking to get a movie made which is that um as a writer in the theater a play is very much your baby you know you mm. you in the theater you're not allowed to change a word of a script without a playwright specifically signing off on it saying, yeah, sure, wow. you, you can do that. You can, you can that. change that. Yeah, theater, they're very, very respectful and protective of, of a writer. Um, in film, it's, it's, a very different, it's a very different thing. And once you have, once you've like signed your baby over, it's not your baby anymore. Yeah, it's yeah. now it now belongs to this collective. I mean, you'd almost say, well, now it's the director's movie, but not necessarily because the director's even answering to producers mm-hmm. who are wanting this placement and they want this thing. And uh, I need a role for my brother, uh, and I'm you know I'm raising a lot of money for this movie, so you better figure out a place to put my brother in it. You know, you've got all these little things, and and you've got to serve all these different masters, and and you have a lot of different creative people coming in who all are bringing their ideas, and you have actors who uh, have a lot more say, and they're like, well, I want to do this thing, and I want to change this, and you know, film is a very, it's very much a all these different ideas come together, and you know, as the writer, it's like once you've handed in the script, you're you're out of the picture. They're, yeah. they're done with you. Um, they're going to change whatever they want. Um, and the writers who are able to succeed in the film industry are the ones who understand that and are able to let go of their baby and be like, okay, okay, I've done all that I can. What appears on that screen, I sure hope it looks like what I wrote, but there's no guarantee that it will. And so, and that was very much, I mean. You know, I've had people that have asked me, well, you know, how, how, how do you feel about the movie or how much, how much of that movie is what you actually wrote? And I'm like, well, watch the play and you'll figure out real quick what in that movie is what I actually wrote. And because they're very different. And, mm. and some of those differences were made by me as I was trying to figure out how to translate it to screen. There were some new scenes that I came up with and, and things like that. But then there's a bunch of stuff in that movie that I had nothing to do with. That uh, and and that's just how film is. Yeah, you know, yeah. and and at the time, obviously, I you know that was a frustrating thing to learn at the time. It was a, a frustrating and hard lesson. Um, if I were to approach a movie project like that today, I'd go in much more like my eyes would be much more open, and I'd be like, okay, I get it, I understand how this works. Yeah, and um, yeah, but you know, I don't I don't regret the experience at all. And, and like I said, I'm really proud of all the people that got opportunities as a result of it. 
and I learned a lot. And to this day, whenever I work on film projects, you know, there are things I learned from that that I carry with me. So, mm. um, yeah, I mean, it's, it was a, it was a learning experience in a lot of ways. And, uh, and, and I do think that there are, there are things in that film that are, they're pretty cool. You know, there's, there's some really good, there's some good VFX in it. I think Angela does a great job. It's funny to see, you know, like the guy from, uh, Ocean's 11, you know, like, like there's, there's, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, there's Eddie Jemison, the guy that, you know, has it, like, part of that crew and now he's max in in the movie and he's saying lines that i wrote and it's like wow this is weird there's kate <laughs> vernon from Battlestar galactica she's I, she's I, I wrote what she's i wrote what ed bagley jr is saying this is weird um yeah it's a cool experience to have that happen and uh yeah yeah they they say when uh i'm in i'm in video production right now that's my what i'm going for in school but they say uh when you make a movie it dies three times when you write it when you make it when you edit it <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, and and you know that's another thing too. Um, I've done a lot more work on the production and editing side mm. uh, since that movie came out. Oh, okay. And 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 I've done a lot more shooting and things like that. And and as a result, you know, I've come to understand that too. You know, that's another thing that's helped me to understand that idea of, hey, you know, a lot of things get changed in between what you originally set out to shoot and what you actually shoot. And sometimes that's dictated by circumstances on the shooting day. And sometimes it's yeah. because of this factor that you didn't anticipate, you know, and, and that's all like, it's all really good to know when you're, when you're a writer who's going in and I wish I'd known it sooner. Yeah. I'm sure that, uh, offered you some, um, you know, some comfort, like under, like you, like you said, like making a movie, you kind of understand that a little more. Cause I feel like, you know, when making a movie, people who might be out of the loop, they, you know, their feelings could get hurt or whatever, like not understanding what's going on. But like, you do really have to like, I imagine you have to take it from like a business management type perspective and be like, you know, there's so many different components and you do, you things do. going on. You and know? in fact, there's, there's a number who, of uh, screenwriters who will tell you that very thing. They're like, you've got to treat it like a business. You've got yeah. to, you cannot um, take things personally and you've got to understand that uh, a lot of decisions are factored by money. Um, you know, that, that friendships get, you know, there are a lot of friendships that have been ruined by film projects, yeah. uh, things like that, because people go in like, we're all buddies and we're going to make this project together. <laughs> and once the financial realities start to hit, uh, people start going in different directions and yep. you start seeing sides of people that you never thought you'd see. And, mm. and, um, you know, if you understand that you'll make it, if you don't understand that it's probably not the industry for you. It's mm. good advice. Um, have you still managed to like retain the rights to your play or did you have to? S yes. And okay. it is one decision that I am so incredibly grateful for because <laughs> yeah. when, when we were, well, no, I mean, when, when we were talking about it, when I, when I did like write the screenplay and I, and I signed the rights over to the production company to shoot the film, uh, in the original contract, they did want full control of the entire mm. property. And I said, I said, I, I can't, I mean, there were, there were other theaters that wanted to do the play and I, I was afraid that if I gave them control, that they were going to shut those theaters down and be like, you can't do it now. Mm. And so I was like, I was like this, you know, I've told people they can do this script. I want to still make sure that the stage version can continue to happen. So for that reason, I need to retain control of the play. Like you guys can do whatever you want with the movie, but I, I get the play. And, and they, they did give, they did change it to give me that. And so thankfully because of that, um, the play has continued to be able to be produced. And I was able to write Aurora 
um, and have that produced. I think if they controlled the rights, I would not have been able to write a sequel to my own play, which would have mm. been a huge bummer. Yeah. So that that is one thing I am I am incredibly grateful that I spoke up for uh, was, was retaining the control of that. I'm glad, man. That's smart. Um, yeah, because it's literally a money game for them. They don't give a yep. shit. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, we're Rob. We're getting up here in an hour, but I wanted to ask you before we leave. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess I wanted to ask you a couple of things, but the first thing, uh, what advice do you have to um, aspiring writers and filmmakers? Do it. <laughs> I I, like it's that. not flippant, man. I, what I mean by that is, I hear so many people who are like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a movie. I'm gonna write a script. I'm gonna do this," and I'm like, "Then do it." Like, you, next thing you know, five years will have gone by of you talking about these things you're going to do. Just do it. Um, you know, to to quote uh, to quote. Shia LaBeouf, uh, <laughs> just do it. <laughs> just make it. <laughs> I mean, I mean, seriously, because because that's the thing. I mean, I think about when I started making videos, and I didn't know what I was doing. I had no idea. I could have gone to film school and spent four years trying to figure it out, or I could just start making stuff and through trial and error start to figure out how things worked. And that's what I did. Um, you know, I, I uh, the reason that the Summerland Project happened was because, you know, it was the same thing. Like for years, I was like, oh, I want to write a play. I want to write a play. I haven't written a play since college. I want to write something. And then Theater Cedar Rapids started the Underground Festival. And uh, there was a June 30th deadline to, you know, to, to get it to submit a script. And I'd had this idea floating around in my head for a long time uh, for that story. And I was like, there's that, let's, let's just do it. And I, I wrote the thing and I got it done like three days before the submission deadline and turned it in. Um, I like, I have made so many stupid online videos that, you know, nobody ever told me, Hey, this is how you do this thing. It was just like, no, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, and then we'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. Um, honestly, like a really good lesson in all of that was, uh, it was two years ago at the start of this lovely pandemic <laughs> and, you know, everybody was stuck at home and, um, there's a Facebook page called Iowa film. I don't know if you're a member of it or not. It um, uh, sounds familiar. It's uh, it's it's really worth being a part of. It's it's a lot of um, film projects and uh, like it's where actors can find jobs and uh, directors can cast people. Uh, sometimes people go on there looking for locations, crew, whatever. And, and people promote their projects and they put films up there and stuff. It's it's a really good group for that hmm. um, for for being able to work on film projects in the state, but. Um, after the pandemic began, this was maybe a couple weeks in, and everybody was stuck at home. And somebody, I think it was Dylan Yeager, had the idea of doing a cell phone film contest. And the idea was that um, you had to shoot using only a cell phone. You couldn't, um, yeah, you, I mean, it didn't matter if you owned a really nice camera. In order to equalize the playing field, you figured everybody has a phone. So, uh, Make a movie with a phone. Uh, you can only use as cast and crew people who you are isolating with in your house. Um, the exception being if you incorporated Zoom somehow, if you had somebody like virtually do something or, mm -hmm. or if somebody recorded something at their house and sent it to you, that, that works too. Okay. But, um, but the idea being, hey, use what you have available and in your home. And uh, and here's the submission deadline to, to post. And then, you know, there'll be a winner each week. 
And so the first week of that, I made this stupid time travel comedy. Yeah, I saw that. Called 2020 <laughs> Vision. And I mean, and I did. I shot it using a Samsung Galaxy S10. And I played opposite myself, um, you know, and then and then put it together and submitted it. And uh, because because that's all we had. Um, and then the following week, I was like, all right, well, what do I want to do this time? And someone had been like, hey, somebody should make a parody of We Didn't Start the Fire by Billy Joel, except just make it all the crazy stuff that's happening in 2020. And I was like, I could do that. All right. So I made uh, this I made this video called This Year is a Dumpster Fire. Mm-hmm. And that was my submission for week two. And I don't know what happened because I posted it. I just posted it for the contest. And, um, and it got like, you know, like my friends and you know, I think got like it got like 20,000 views in the course of like two weeks. And, wow. I, and I was like, hey, that's pretty good. You know, yeah. I've never had a video. And then it, it petered out. And I was like, that's OK. It's done. And I didn't think anything else about it until about two or three months later. I don't know what happened. But somehow it blew up, and I like I wake up and I look at my phone. And you've got, you have one hundred and fifty thousand new views on your video, and you've like like you know two hundred comments, and I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, and all these people were checking out Dumpster Fire, and I wound up making like two more of them because of yeah. how awful the rest of the year wound up being. I wound up making three Dumpster Fire videos. <laughs> wow. um, but I mean, these were videos that I made like at home during a pandemic with limited gear, my wife very patiently like doing crew stuff. It's like no resources, nothing available. And I wound up making a couple of things that um, like won awards at the Iowa Motion Picture Association Awards the following year and have gotten like a bunch of views online. And it's like, if I just sat there and thinking about, oh man, what should I, you know, if I let myself overthink everything, I might not have produced any of that stuff. But instead, I just was like, let's just do it. Let's just make some stuff. Um, you you talk to a lot of filmmakers and they'll always, you know, if you show them their early work, they're always so embarrassed. They're like, oh, that's terrible. Oh, my God, I can't stand looking at that. I don't know anything about white balance. My lighting is terrible. What is this crap camera I'm using? This is awful. I, you know, And, uh, you know, they're super embarrassed by it. But the thing is, they had to make that in order to be able to make the stuff they make now. They had to get out there, create something, learn from it, learn the mistakes that they were making, or have somebody say, hey, that thing that you're doing, you can accomplish that better if you use this piece of gear or if you put a light here. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay, I'm going to change that. And next time I shoot, I'll, I'll try that. And, and it works. Um, there's a concept, it's called failing forward, <laughs> which is the idea that you will never make progress if you aren't willing to fail. Mm. Yeah. That uh, you have to fail. That if you're terrified of failure, you'll never grow because you'll never take a risk because I can't mm-hmm. fail at this. So it's like you have to fail. You have to be willing to fail. And that every time you do fail, uh, in a, how does that make you grow? And yeah. how does that improve you? And what, what did you learn from that failure that you're like, okay, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, that's like the best advice I could give to an aspiring filmmaker is just get out there and do it. Make the mistakes. Make stuff that – is uh you know you know it could be better but hey man you got to start somewhere and you got to start creating and it's better to keep creating and get better and learn than it is to sit there and just think about well what am i going to do what am i going to do and and like years go by and you never make anything um that that is like the best advice i could give i i have a couple of albums in my collection um that i i love them because they're terrible uh one of them is called why can't tori read it's uh, Tori Amos's first album, 
Um, there's another one. Uh, it's like Attila and the Hassles. It's a combination of like the various bands that Billy Joel was in before he finally you know, became Billy Joel. And then there's, um, and then there's something called uh, Option 30, and it's Trent Reznor's 80s cover band from before Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> they're terrible, but they're amazing because you're like, okay, geniuses are not born. Yeah. You know, Tori Amos didn't just, wasn't just magically an amazing singer-songwriter. Uh, you know, Trent Reznor was not, you know, Nine Inch Nails from the beginning. You know, he was he was singing Dirk Commissar with like these 80s guys. And it's it's like, okay, see, they started somewhere and they grew. They grew into who they are. And I think that that's a really important message for people to remember is that Steven Spielberg what did not pop out of the womb as a genius filmmaker. The dude worked, he hustled, he learned, and now he is who he is. Um, even, you know, like Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. You know, Tarantino spent lots of time studying, you know, like working in a video store, and he learned what made film work. Mm-hmm. Didn't and, go to school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, he, you know, but he was, you know, you can chart. Tarantino's growth through his mm-hmm. films. Oh, you can, yeah. You can chart any filmmaker's growth through their films, uh, you know, with the possible exception of Michael Bay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, actually, you know what? That's 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 even not fair. Like even even Michael Bay. <laughs> it took for, him a while. For all, the, for all the crap <laughs> Michael Bay gets, you know, every once in a while, even Michael Bay produces something that you're like uh, – like Pain and Gain, the movie with Mark mm. Wahlberg and The Rock. That movie is hilarious. And I was like, this is Michael Bay? This is actually pretty good. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that uh, I, I think that you have to be willing to grow and learn and make mistakes along the way and know that the first thing you make is probably not going to be that great. But you have to make it in order to make great things down the line. So for that reason, that's the, the biggest advice I would give to people is just get out there and make stuff and use whatever you have available to you uh, and use whatever actors you can find. Um, write the stories that interest you and just make stuff and, and see what happens and see how you grow as a result of it. I like that. I always tell people, I, I think um, someone who you know keeps trying something, I feel like they would have to intentionally try to do worse to like, you know, like, I feel like it's impossible to get worse the more you do something unless you really try. So I, I really like that advice, man. Let me ask you one more thing. Yeah. Um, you mentioned you're about to become a father. Yes. Uh, let me ask you about that. What's that feel like? Um, when's your wife due? Uh, April 1st, which wow. we actually try to tell people April 2nd because we're like, otherwise no one's going to believe this. <laughs> April 1st, like, yeah, right. Sure she is. Um, at this point, you can look at you can look at Megan and it's clear that we're not joking. No, yeah. she really is pregnant. But, um, <laughs> but you know, like that early on, we were like, yeah, we're expecting. When's the baby due? April 1st. Oh, shut up. That, that'd be the best. April Fool's gag. <laughs> That's commitment. <laughs> but uh, but no. Um, so yeah, it, it's a weird feeling. It's uh, it, especially, you know, I, I was giving my friend Tim some crap because uh, my friend Tim Arnold, it, he's the same age as me. We rode Ragbri together last year. Mm. Um, Tim's second oldest daughter uh, is about to give birth to her second baby um, next month. Uh, I think her, her first baby is like a year, uh, at least a year old now. And I was like, damn it, Tim, because you're the same age as me. 
And you're a grandfather now. That means I'm old enough to be a grandfather, and I don't like knowing that. So <laughs> what you? Why did you? You're a jerk. Um, <laughs> and, and so it, it's funny to think that you know, at the same age that my friend Tim has become a grandfather, I'm about to become a dad for the first time. So that's a weird thought. But also, you know. I feel like I had to wait this long because there were so many other things I was working on when I was younger and I wasn't mm. in a place to be a dad. I just wasn't. It wasn't a priority of mine. I I was, you know, working on theater and film and um you know, in order to balance having a full-time job in journalism and at the same time have a have like a busy career in theater and film and all of that, it basically it basically meant I had no spare time at all. Yeah. And I would have been a terrible dad back then because I wouldn't have been around. Um, it would have either been that or I would have had to have given up on a lot of dreams in order to be a dad, which I wouldn't have – I mean, that, that I would have done it if I had to, but I wouldn't have been happy about yeah, it. Yeah. But now I'm at a point where I'm like, hey, you know what? I've done a lot of, a lot of cool stuff and – I, I feel like I'm I'm ready to take on this challenge now. I feel like I'm in a place in my life where this this would this would be a this would be a good thing to do. Um, I think that it's a scary world, obviously. Yeah, bring, bringing a kid in right now, but um, but I feel like you know, Megan and I we've we're both ready for we want we want to do the best job we can um, to create like a great home for this kid, give him a really good starting point you know whatever happens out in the world you can't control that uh but um but we can try to give him as good of a home and as good of a start as we possibly can and and we're excited to do that which you know i'm, I'm at a point in my life where i can say that now and that's that's yeah. good you know man i'm not i'm not a parent but uh i can tell you that's a good mentality to have i feel like a lot where a lot of parents fails they try to have the helicopter parent mentality and they're like oh i gotta control everything but you know you just saying that you know we're just trying to give ha kind of having like a humble you know approach to it, i think you'll do well there's three things you know there's three things that i want for my my son um I mean, if he becomes a straight A student or is like incredibly talented in a certain area or whatever, hey, that's great. Good for you, kid. I'm, I'm, and I'll be super proud of him. Mm -hmm. But it's like that's not on the priority list. Mm. For me, the most important things are that my kid has empathy for other people, that um, you know, he's open to other people's stories and, and what they need and isn't like the world isn't all about him. Uh, it's important to me that he – is a critical thinker that um, that he learns to think for himself, analyze things that are going on in the world, um, and be open to perspectives other than his own. I, I wish more people did that, and I'm going to do everything I can to to teach him that. And then the third thing is, I want him to be passionate about something. But I don't care what it is. I'm not going to tell him, "Hey, dude, you got to be a filmmaker, or you got to play this sport, or whatever." You know, like, I'm not going to try to pressure him to like something you know or, or succeed in a certain area but what i am going to be is dude you got to care about something do not grow up to be one of those people who just doesn't care about anything and just exists and goes through life day to day and is like i don't really know i don't care it's like dude it, you know have a passion you know find something that you care about and then put your heart into it as long as he does that I'll be super happy and I don't care what it is. Let him, you know, he becomes like passionate about video games. Oh, okay. I mean, there's a career to be had there. If you yeah. know what you're doing, go yeah. for it, man. Wants to get into music. All right. Wants to play basketball. Sure, dude. I'm a terrible athlete, but I'll help you any way I can. 
you know, I, I just I just want him to care about something. I think it's so important to have something in life that you're passionate about. And whatever that thing is, is up to you. But, you know, just but care, care about something. I like that. Rob, this has been a great conversation. Um, where can people find you? Uh, anything else you want to mention before we wrap up here? Oh, uh, just you can find me on Facebook. Um, I, you know, I, th- I think I'm I'm pretty sure that I'm facebook.com slash mad reindeer any place that you find mad reindeer floating around that's me like I have a bunch of online presences and it's always mad reindeer it's based on a uh, I used to draw a, a graphic novel called mad reindeer oh, it's about an nice. angry angry mutant reindeer that ran around in the woods with a machine gun chasing after hunters and getting revenge I thought it was funny um, and it was you know it was actually something I drew in high school and then like in in the mid 2000s I decided to bring it back as a graphic novel and I still have have this ambition that one day I'll bring it back as an animated series. I really, really want to do that. Um, I, you know, never stop dreaming, man. Never. St- yeah. I've still got so many things that I want. I, I always tell people I don't understand it when people say I'm bored because <laughs> I've always got way more stuff that I want to do than I have time to do. And yeah. it's like the thought of sitting there going, yeah, I don't really know what to do. Like, that's alien to me. I'm like, no, dude, I got to get this thing done. And then this thing. And if I've got like a spare day, I'm going to build this model car and uh, I want to start my own cartoon. Um, and, uh, yeah. And, and, and if all else fails, uh, I want to make a nine inch nails cover band, <laughs> except that we do Disney tunes, but with a nine inch nails arrangement, it's going to be awesome. <laughs> well, that would break the internet for sure. I think, oh man, I, there was a guy, there was, there's a thing called no, no shame theater in Iowa City. I don't know if it's still there, but when I was in college, we had No Shame Theater and there was a guy that got up one time and he did a bit and it was just called Nine Inch Disney. And <laughs> his t-shirt and it was like N-I-D and he gets up on the microphone and he's like, it's a world of shit and piss. It's a world of shit and piss. And I was like, this is amazing. This is amazing. One day, man, I will make that entire album because I dream of that. Sell the rights to Warner Brothers or something. Man, are you are you regretting asking me onto this podcast yet? You <laughs> oh, have unleashed no. my brain on oh, the no. world. Dude, you're on the McAllister hours, man. You haven't even scratched the surface of the intensity our show goes on sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Rob, this has been a pleasure, man. Uh, I wish you luck. Thank you for coming on. Absolutely. Um, everybody stay tuned. We will be back. Have a good one.